Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're in uh, Leviticus 18 today. If you would, do me the honor of praying with me before we begin our sermon today. Our gracious Father, we come to you uh, in these minutes and ask that you help us be full of grace and full of truth. Help us as your people to understand what's going on in our world around us as you help us through Scripture and through the discerning God of our Holy Spirit who lives within us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we as your people would be people who apply your word to our lives, practice it, submit to its authority. Pray also, Lord, that we would be gracious toward those who don't think like we do and who don't act and behave like we do, recognizing that you are the only one that can redeem their hearts and rescue their lives and change their behaviors. So, Father, not only today in this time of sermon and opening scripture do we pray for your help and your grace and your peace in our lives. We pray, Lord, that as we walk out of here today and interact with those in our world around us, family and friends and neighbors, we pray, Lord, that you would season us with both truth and grace to embody the very character of Christ, our Lord and Savior, whom we seek to exalt today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series uh, entitled Worship and Worldview, the Intersection of Church and Culture. And one of the topics that is unavoidable when we think about the intersection of church and culture is the topic of sexuality. Uh, many of you and many of us kind of bemoan the shifting values and morals that we've watched happen in our lifetime. Indeed, uh, as I was reflecting on my dad's age and some of the conversations we've had over the last years, my dad lived through the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s, and the sexual revolution has had a grandchild uh, that would make many of those who lived through the sexual revolution blush about some of the things that are going on in our world today. And what we need to try to do as Christians is frame the way that we think about those issues, our worldview, with the Bible, and frame the way that we behave regarding those issues with the Bible. Albert Moeller, the president at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, put it this way. He said, the only institutions in America today that do not hold solidly to the LGBTQ agenda are Christian schools... Christian churches, and Christian homes. Let that sink in just a second. If we're going to help our children and our grandchildren and ourselves address issues of sexuality from a biblical vantage point, from a biblical viewpoint, then it's up to us to be the ones to not only see what Scripture says and submit to its authority, but teach it. Because, you know, for years we could assume that the general mores of our country would support the general mores of our homes. That's no longer the case. It's no longer the case that we uh, can expect society to disciple our kids or train our kids or train our grandkids in a way that's consistent with what God's Word says. In some ways, we're tempted to think that what we're dealing with is new. Uh, One commentator put it this way, 
he observed that we are in the midst in our own day of a cultural or a constitutional revolution that has bitterly divided citizens, politicians, and judges. It's a battle that has dominated politics, inflamed religious passions, and challenged Americans to rethink and examine their, issue, their positions on issues they once thought settled. And it is about sex and gender and ideology. But lest we think we are dealing with something that is new, we're not. In ancient Rome, Kyle Harper argues, sexuality came to mark the great divide between Christians and the world. And a similar divide has opened up today. Another commentary from the text we're going to look at today in Leviticus chapter 18 observed that it was in the sexual realm in particular that the Israelites were aware of their differences with the Canaanites. In other words, Christian uh, viewpoint on sexuality, biblical sexuality, has almost always been one of the markers of what it means to be God's people. Say, Pastor, we get that. I get that. Why in the world are we talking about that? in the life of the church. Well, we are no longer living in a world with differences between morality and immorality. We're living in a world that has returned to essentially what would be a religious fanaticism according to sexual proclivities. I've entitled the message, Biblical Worldview in a Culture of Pagan Sexuality. What is paganism? Paganism is essentially the idea that the sacred is rooted in the felt and experienced world. In other words, there's not a transcendent authority. There is an imminent reality of what is sacred. And for paganism, whether it was the Canaanite world or the Greco-Roman world or today's world, then worship and religious expression is ultimate when it comes to the human person and physical, uh, physical urges and physical pleasures. For example... Uh, in the Roman world, the, the issue of sexual fulfillment, whether heterosexual or homosexual, within or outside of marriage, is inherently natural and good and is a manifestation of the mysterious indwelling presence of the gods. That's the way Greco-Romans viewed much of sexual pleasure and sexual desires. Uh, another statement, the, the contemporary culture world wars... Today, this is from Stephen Smith in a book I didn't reference in your resources, but a fascinating one, Pagans and Christians in the City. He says, the contemporary culture wars revolve around religion. The struggle for power is in large part a struggle between uh, competing truth claims, which by their very nature are religious if in character, if not in content. He goes on to, to make this observation from Mary Eberstadt that the new sexual morality is a quasi-religious orthodoxy where erotic fulfillment in our world is nothing short of salvation. In other words, one of the reasons why we have such a tension along this issue is because we're no longer living in a world where Christians can have their framework of morality within their churches and everybody else kind of recognizes that sleeping around or promiscuity or other forms of sexual sins are sins. That's not the argument we're having today. We're having an argument about two different moralities. There's a Christian morality that is framed under the authority of God and based on His holiness and righteousness. And there is a contemporary sexual morality that says anything goes. And the difference is... 
in who is worshipped. In the Christian worldview, God is worshipped. In the sexual worldview that, that pervades our culture, self is worshipped. Say, Pastor, I get that. I get all that that's going on in our world today. Why do we need to talk about this in church? Because unfortunately, things like this are going on in churches all across our country. The United Methodist Church is dividing over this issue, whether to affirm and ordain homosexual ministers and whether to marry those who are homosexual within the life of the church, creating a division, creating all sort of discord in that congregation. Another congregation in our country came up with what they call a sparkle creed. Instead of quoting the Apostles' Creed on a Sunday morning, they quote something like this, I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic, had two dads, and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. That's just a portion of the creed that is espoused in some congregations of people who claim to be the people of God gathering in our country today. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. That's where we live today. And one of the challenges that we have as Christians inside this particular environment and culture is that um, we believe we're right. But the other side of the viewpoint believes they're right too. And we're not the ones in political power or have authority over the world in which we live. And C.S. Lewis' observation about tyranny is exactly accurate as to what we're experiencing as Christians who now are a part of the minority culture in terms of our viewpoint on sexuality. Lewis put it this way, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. The reason this issue is not going to go away, the reason we're not going to all of a sudden win the culture war and we're going to go back to the values of the 1940s and 50s in our country is because those on the different side of this debate think they're right. And they're going to argue for their viewpoint of right versus our viewpoint of right. And it's going to continue to be a tension point in, in, our, in our country and for us as Christians. So what do we do with this? How do we discover from Scripture what we ought to think about it? Well, we go back to what God's Word teaches. We go to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is an interesting text to go to. Some of you will know some of the statements about sexuality in Leviticus. And we're looking at one of the passages of Scripture there. And you say, Pastor, could you not go to a little nicer section of Scripture? Like maybe the New Testament where there's grace. There's grace in the Old Testament too. There's grace in this text. This text means a whole lot more than what we think it does at first glance. And primarily because the book of Leviticus, the third book in the Bible, is all about worship. The distinctive point for the people of God in the book of Leviticus is that they were to worship God. 
And their worship of God was then to be reflected in the behaviors in which they engaged in, sexual or otherwise. Look with me, if you will, first few verses of the book of Leviticus chapter 18. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. A recurring phrase throughout the book of Leviticus, particularly in this chapter and the next. And he says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Three times in five verses. God identifies himself as their Lord and their God. If you go back to the book of Exodus chapter 20, God begins it this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, God initiated relationship with his people. He initiated redemption with his people. And then he said to his people, you are mine. You're in my family. I've redeemed and rescued you. Now I want you to live in a way that's consistent with my character and my righteousness and my holiness. We're going to look at one principle and three arguments for that principle regarding a biblical view of sexuality. Here's the principle. The principle is this. Relationship precedes rules. Too often we want to make a lot of rules and tell everybody how they've got to live. But in the Bible, relationship precedes rules. Rules without relationship result in legalism. There are a lot of people who want rules. Rules help them. They give them a framework But if you have rules without a relationship with God, then all you have is legalistic standards. And too many of our religions in the world these days are essentially that. They're legalism. And too much legalism permeates the church of Jesus Christ. Relationship precedes the rules. The rules are there for a purpose. They're there and they're important. And we'll talk about that. But relationship is the primary uh, emphasis and the, 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 uh, the originator for the rules. But relationship without rules, which happens in all too many Christian churches or so-called Christian churches in our culture today, results in license. In other words, it results in behavior that's never been affirmed and blessed by God who is in charge. So the principle is this, relationship precedes rules. Let me make three arguments from the text of Leviticus 18 that give us a framework for a biblical worldview regarding human sexuality. First is this, to experience the grace of the gospel, God's holiness must be established in his demands. To experience the grace of the gospel, God's holiness must be established in his demands. You look at verses 1 through 5, I am the Lord your God. If you look at the laws, and we're going to read maybe one or two of them, verses 6 through 23, but we don't have to read all that text. You can read it later. There's a framework that's put together there. If you look at the latter part of the text, verses 24 through 30, there's an expectation that the Lord is the Lord and he's the one who brings judgment. We will read that in a little bit. You look at Leviticus 19. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God. I am holy and you need to be holy as I am holy. Peter repeats that refrain in his first letter. In other words, in order for us to experience the grace of God's forgiveness, we have to understand the, the demand of his holiness. That's why I read Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God is reflected in the law, but ultimately it's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Folks, we do not have good news 
if we have not broken the law that gives us the bad news that provides us the reason for receiving the good news. You cannot have the gospel of Jesus Christ without the holiness of God. And part of the, the reason why, why we, we cringe at this is because the holiness of God and his demands and his expectations upon us and upon the world, and we'll see both of that in this text, the expectations of God are not based on some kind of human standard of righteousness. They're based on God's character. They're based on his nature. They're based on the holiness of his very person. And so if you don't have the holiness of God... You cannot have the grace of the gospel. Because it's the holiness of God that reveals how far short of that standard that we actually fall. And it's only when we recognize that we fall short of that standard that we will seek the only one who can provide us rescue and redemption from our own sinful situation. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, in the text, one of the things you have to know is this. God had rescued his people. You get that? This set of standards is not written to people outside the family. It's written to people inside the family. It has effect on people outside. We'll see that. But it's written for God's people because he rescued them. He rescued them. He, he brought them out of Egypt. And folks, what has he done for us? He's brought us out of sin. He's brought us out of unrighteousness and brought us into his family. And because we are his people, and he identifies three times, I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh. I am in charge. I am your God. I am the one you are to worship. You alone are to worship. Then here's where the intersection of church and culture comes in Leviticus chapter 18. As the people of God. Our obligation is not to find our standards outside of his holiness and righteousness. Our obligation is to find the standards that we abide by and live by inside his very nature and inside his very righteousness. We are the people of God. Bottom line is this. God sent his son Jesus to pay for our sins, to rescue us from unrighteousness, to die on the cross for our wickedness and our depravity. And if we come into a faith relationship with the living God, and he is our God, then he has the right to demand whatever standard he has defined. And as his people, as the body of Christ, as the church, we're obligated to live under his expectations and standards. Book of Leviticus was written for God's people, and as such, as his people today, we have obligation to live underneath it. Now, it has implications for all people. We'll see that in just a moment. Let's look at the, the next argument that I would like to make uh, for a biblical view of sexuality. It's this. As God's people seeking to receive God's protections, we need to adhere to his ethical standards. The, 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 next, the next kind of question would go, so why does God care about human sex? Why does he care about it? Why, why doesn't he just leave us alone to, to operate the way we want to operate? Why does he care about what happens in bedrooms and what happens in the minds of people? Why does he care about those things? You know why God cares about those things? Because he wants to protect us from the damage that we can do to ourselves or from the sinful behavior that we have. If you look at the, the verses 6 through 23, 
He deals with all sort of sins, sexual sins, in these verses. He talks about incest. He talks about promiscuity. He talks about fornication, sex outside of marriage, before marriage. He talks about adultery, uh, sex that has broken the marriage covenant. He talks about homosexuality. He talks about bestiality. He talks about even sacrificing children to false gods and false deities. All sort of things that are repugnant as we think about it. I mean, oh my goodness, can you believe? And, and, and here's, here's Christians get a bad rap because we say, okay, God's against the LGBTQ community and all that kind of stuff. No, no, that, that, that's not true at all. God doesn't single out these sins. You will not find the issue of homosexuality in Scripture outside of a list of other sexual sins. You just won't do it. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, you say, man, God's really harsh towards sexuality in the Old Testament. Listen to Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6, or 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, rather, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, do not look at, in your heart with lust toward a woman, for you have committed adultery in that vein as well. The New Testament is not any nicer or easier on human sin than the Old Testament is. In fact, what Jesus does in the New Testament is he makes it Harder to be righteous and pure before God. Why in the world does God give us these standards? Why did he give the people of Israel these standards? Because he wants us to understand that he wants to protect us. When we abide by worshiping anything other than the one true God, we walk down a path that ultimately is going to end in our destruction. One of the greatest problems with sexuality in our culture today is that it is self-worship. It's the worship of of one's own individual autonomy. We are the makers of our own destiny. We are the deciders of all things that are going on in our lives. The problem with that is that ends in separation from God because God is the only one that can bring about redemption and rescue. God wants to protect us. He wants to take care of us. He wants to bring us into relationship with himself. He wants to keep us from harm and keep us from hurting other people. He wants to. And so his standards are given so that we will not be bound by the self-prescribed or self-caused problems in our own lives. He wants to bring about protection. And by the way, Mark Rooker put it this way, although the laws in Leviticus 18 set forth moral and ceremonial principles, the sexual prohibitions enumerated are still in effect today and they're reiterated in much of the New Testament C.S. Lewis put it this way, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Sex outside of marriage detracts from what God intended sex to be. Thus, sexual infidelity inevitably disrupts the one flesh relationship. Moreover, it is devastating to the entire family. Where there is incest or adultery, we may truly say that the family is murdered. What murder is uh, to the individual, that is precisely uh, what these crimes are to the class of the family. Marriage is not just a civil arrangement. It is a divine institution. So why did God give us these protections? Why did he give us these laws? To protect us. To keep us from damaging ourselves and to keep us from damaging Others, to keep us from shaping and harming those that are under our responsibility. If you look at the values and the viewpoints of contemporary culture, not only does anything go, but 
there are ideologies that are harming prepubescent children today in the name of sexual promiscuity and sexual freedom. And God, he has ordained protections and a framework in place so that we will be safe underneath his glory and his goodness. It's like an umbrella. When we as God's people live underneath his standards, we're living underneath the umbrella of his protection. And he doesn't force us to stay there. You have a free will. You can go make the choices you want to make. And we have a world that's exhibiting free will, making all sort of choices that it wants to make. But when you step outside uh, or out from under an umbrella, you get rained on. When you step out from under the umbrella of God's protections, you're no longer guaranteed his protections for your life and for your soul and for your eternity. Here's an implication that comes from this. Read with me, if you will, in verse 24. He says, Do not make for yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land has become unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes, my rules, and do none of these abominations, neither the native nor the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from their people. So keep... My charge, never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Here's an implication. God not only cares about protecting his people, but he cares about protecting all those made in his image. His standards are primarily for us as a church. Primarily for us as his people. Primarily for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. That, that's who he gave these standards to. And as God's people, we ought to make sure we line up underneath his protections. But he does care about all of the people in the world that are made in his image. So here's an implication. When the prevailing sexual mores of a culture are outside God's laws, we can expect God to judge that people or nation. He did so with Canaanites. He did so with the Babylonians. He did so with the Greco-Romans. He did so with the Israelites who moved out from underneath his protections and moved into patterns of sexual misconduct over and over again. And folks, I can assure you that because God cares about those who are made in his image, he'll do so with our own country as well. It's not God being vindictive. It's God giving us what we, as a culture, have asked for in terms of our behaviors and our choices. Let me give you a third argument, and this will be the final one this morning. Only in the sexual ethics derived from the biblical worldview do we discover the rare and priceless nature of human sexuality. See, the greatest problem with the sexual mores and patterns of our world today is that it doesn't really value human sexuality the way that God values it. God calls it something priceless and important. Our culture says that it's cheap and it's uh, up to our own ideas what we do. Nancy Piercy put it this way in her book, Love Thy Body. Some may think that sexual hedonism gives sex too much importance. But in reality, it gives sex too little importance. It treats the body as nothing more than a physical orgasm driven by physical urges. It treats sex as 
strictly an, a physical act isolated from the rich inner life of the whole person. Thus, it deprives sex of its depth by detaching it from its meaning or detaching it from its meaning as self-giving between a man and a woman committed to building an entire life together. Let me illustrate it this way. None of us have ever taken the McDonald's Happy Meal toys that we got or our children got when we were growing up and put them in safety deposit boxes. Those Happy Meal toys break within 30 seconds of playing with them and they get thrown in the garbage. People don't take their junk mail and put it in their locked filing cabinets. We take our junk mail and we rip it up and we put it in the trash can. People don't put their trash in lockable display cabinets. Okay? Listen, the people who don't clear out the clutter and the people who save all the junk, we call them hoarders and we've made an A&E TV show after them. Okay? And they, they trouble us, right? Things that are common and ordinary and junk, what do we do with? We, we throw it away. They're cheap things. In contrast, when we have a rare coin when we have a rare jewel, when we have jewelry, or when we have something of incredible value, what do we do with that something? That's what we put in a safety deposit box. That's what we put in a display cabinet. That's what we make sure is safe and secure. And here's what's happened, folks. In our culture, our culture has treated sex as something that is cheap, as something that, that is just to be thrown away, as something that's just to be done. And of course there are no frameworks. And of course there are, are no standards. Because for them it's not anything precious. But God didn't give us the gift of sexuality. For it to be something that's cheap and something that's thrown away. He gave it to us as something that's to be cherished. In a committed relationship. That's why Leviticus 18 has all these protections in place. It's not because God cares so deeply about keeping us from enjoying what he's given us. It's because God cares about us enjoying what he's given us. It's rare and it is precious and it is valuable. Here's the implication. Joy, peace, and fulfillment will only be found when we rightly worship our creator and when we live under his standards, sexual and otherwise. Every single one of us in this room and our worship services throughout this day can attest to the reality of this. There's no guilt like sexual guilt, whatever it may be. Pornography, addiction, immorality, adultery, there's not a guilt associated with that. It doesn't make us better. It doesn't fulfill us. It leaves us wanting more. It leaves us lacking because we feel like we've missed out. Absolutely. So what does God do? He gives us a framework. He gives us protections. He gives us laws so that we don't have to feel and sense that. And, and see, God designed it that way, that when two people become one flesh, they're unified together for a lifetime. That is his perfect ideal. That's his perfect expectation. And, and it's beautiful, and it's precious, and it's rare, and it's something that God desires to happen in the lives of his people. But when we, as a culture... Or as a person, when we, we shatter that and push away from that, we live inside the judgments that we've made in our own lives. So what do we do with this? Let me give you some very specific applications. To the sexual center, 
If you're here and you're guilty of sexual misconduct in any fashion or framework, I want to tell you, God accepts repentance and will offer you grace. You can't outrun God's ability to forgive you. It doesn't matter what it is. God will receive you back. 1 Corinthians, talking about another list of sexual sins, Paul puts it this way, and such were some of you. God will receive sinners back into his family. So if you're here today and you're guilty of sin in any fashion, sexual sin in any fashion, repent. Come back to Christ. You can receive grace and forgiveness. To the teenager or young adult, let me say this to you. Your body is priceless. Do not give it away cheaply. Adopt a biblical worldview. Frame and think about yourselves in the way that God expects to the parent or grandparent in the room. Read one of these resources or several of them. If you do not disciple your children and your grandchildren regarding a biblical worldview, especially with relation to biblical sexuality, they're not going to hear it anywhere else from anywhere else. The last time I preached a sermon on this was 2018. I probably won't preach another sermon directly on this for another several years. If you're waiting on the church alone to be the deciding, discussing factor in the lives of your children and grandchildren, believe me, I can't compete with the Disneyfication of the culture. I can't compete with what they're going to hear at the schools, certainly not with what they're going to hear from professors at institutions of higher education. Read these resources. Teach your children about sexuality from a biblical worldview. To the single in the room, Worship God and obey Him through your chastity. We, in our culture, have overemphasized sexuality. Jesus was a single man who never experienced any kind of sexual fulfillment. He was chaste in his life. Who we are as people does not revolve around our gender and our sexuality. Who we are as people revolves around the fact that we've been made in His image. To us as a church... We need to worship God, believe the Bible, and stand on the truth of God's Word. Folks, we cannot be people who ignore what God's Word says because if we ignore what God's Word says, we will inevitably ignore the protections He's put in place for ourselves and for those in His family. Lastly, let me say this to you. God is supremely patient. Say, Pastor, I can't believe you chose Leviticus 18. It's a sermon about biblical sexuality. I want you to hear this. In Genesis chapter 15, God said to Abraham, he said, I am going to take your people, your, 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 your heritage, the ones after you. They're going to go spend some time in Egypt. They're going to be enslaved in Egypt. And then I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to give them the promised land that I've told you I'm giving you. But God made an interesting statement to Abraham in Genesis 15, 16. He said, I will bring you back into the promised land when the sin of the Amorites is complete. That's the sin of all these peoples that God is talking about here in Leviticus 18. You should watch this. God, in his patience, in his abundant patience, allowed the people of Canaan to exist for at least 500 years continuing in a progression of wickedness and sin before he brought his people into the land of Canaan as an instrument of judgment upon the sin of the Canaanites that's described here in Leviticus chapter 18. 500 years of patience. 
God is not waiting to destroy those who are sexual sinners with lightning bolts from heaven like the God Zeus in the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. God's not waiting to destroy. He's not waiting to punish. He's not longing to send people away from him. God is glorious in his patience. He was with the people of Israel. He was even with the Canaanites. He is even with our own country. He is even with those in our families and those in our neighborhoods and those in our, in, in our relational circles. But hear this, don't presume upon the patience of God. He won't always forbear. He won't always wait. So if you need to turn to him, turn to him today. If you need someone else to turn to him, turn to God in their stead and pray for them. Seek God on their behalf. God hears the prayers of his people. God wants us to be shaped by biblical patterns of living so that we can show others what it's like. By the way, if we simply live by a biblical sexual ethic, we will look like the people of God in our world today. It is probably the most clearly distinguishing category of what it means to be a Christian in a secular, progressive worldview. So let's commit to being biblical. Let's pray and seek God. And folks, if you need to repent or pray for someone to repent, would you take this time at this invitation today and seek God on their behalf? If you're here and you're struggling and you need some help, I'd be willing to talk to you. I realize a sermon like this is not going to fill the altars with people kneeling and praying and seeking God. Maybe you do need to talk, though. Take the tear tab in your worship guide. Put your name and contact information on it. I'll be happy to talk to you at your convenience. Stand with me, if you will. Our Father, you are gracious beyond measure. You are patient. You are kind. You are merciful. Yet you also give us standards. You give us standards that are hard for us to hear, but necessary for us to live by. Pray for us as a congregation. Pray that we, as your people, would be people who reflect your holiness, would be people who receive your grace through your son Christ. Pray for our children and teenagers. Lord, that as parents and as church and as a body of Christ, we would do a good job helping them understand the biblical uh, expectations and patterns, and biblical worldview regarding sexuality. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who we are burdened for, those who have drifted. It may be a sexual drift moving towards something that is sinful, as we've talked about today, or maybe a drift in some other pattern and behavior in their lives. Lord, you are patient, and I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that you would hear our cries and hear our prayers for them, and I pray that you would draw them to repentance and draw them to life. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to be a people who reflect the truth of Scripture, but also the grace of Christ to those in our families and in our neighborhoods. Make us like you for your glory and for your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 